So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including greenmajority.ca, which is our website. However you found us, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to a special episode. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am super excited to be here with Aaron Vincentian, who is the co-author of The Future is Degrowth. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Stefan. We have mentioned degrowth a couple times recently and definitely previously on the show, in part because it gives such a different look at the climate crisis than 90% of what off of, of the conversations you normally will get. You know, it, it really tackles some of the really underlying questions. And so if we're going to do this deep dive into the world of degrowth, probably helpful to define some terms and probably starting with growth in the first place. So uh, very high level, how would you define growth? Second chapter of our book, basically, we focus on trying to define growth. And I would say there's the high level definition and then there's very different, um, more specific definitions. But I could say that growth is a ideology, a material process, and a social process, which are all interlinked and self-reinforcing. And specifically, it's a process that is geared towards expansion of the economy. Growth, expansion of the economy. What are those three, you sort of identify those three ways to sort of break it down. Maybe we can get a little deeper and, and talk about each of those. Yeah, so we could begin with the ideological aspect of growth. Um, you know, when I say the word economic growth, for different people, different kinds of things might come to mind. Um, some people might think GDP, um, gross domestic product. Other people might think, some people will say extraction or expansion. Uh, there's other people who might say something like progress. So we say that growth is part of a cognitive frame where lots of different ideas are brought together under this one concept and they're all kind of jumbled um, together. And that's kind of what, why we argue that it's actually such an insidious ideology because uh, in the same sentence, different people might understand very different things from it, but ultimately it's justifying a very particular kind of economy. So to talk about growth as an ideology, um, we have to go into history a little bit in the, uh, as we show in our book, and this is based on uh, research by our co-author, Matthias Schmelzer, um, the, the phrase economic growth was never really used before the 1950s. 
like it it just wasn't a thing that people talked about people didn't say we need the economy to grow which is really strange like that it's if if you imagine like well okay in the 1940s um people still recovering from a great recession but they didn't actually say to recover from the great um uh, recession we have to uh grow the economy no one ever said that the word economic growth only came about when um economists started developing this tool to measure um basically the the amount of uh capital production that's happening in an economy which at the time was gross national product um and that at the time was just a tool it was a metric and the people who invented it were like by the way don't use this too much we don't really want that we don't really think it's that useful um but here we are 70 years later um and almost every single economy in the world every single country gears everything towards gdp um so that's kind of what we mean by an ideology it's something very recent because it's so recent we have to understand where it comes from and we have to understand that things haven't always been this way interesting so I didn't actually know that. So the idea of economic growth actually came out of the ability to theoretically measure it. It's one of these things that yes. sort of got built backwards. We created something GDP to measure something. Yes. And then that created this belief that that thing we've now created should always be increasing. Yes. And what we have to also understand the context. This is the 1940s. The world is recovering from the Second World War. The looming threat is, uh, is, is communism. And at the same time, really strong labor movements at home. So what's the best way to kind of um, put a, put something in, in the, you know, kind of put a stop to either of those is to say, well, the capitalist system is the best system around. In order for all these unions to get what they're demanding, we need to, um, the only way that you're going to get that is by growing this system. The only way that you're going to get your demands is first allowing the system to grow. And the same thing was, you know, the only way that a country could get towards a, a level of material progress was kind of gearing their economy towards economic growth instead of towards, let's say, um, making all their services public um, or towards trying to create a system that isn't based on profit. Um, so that was the context of the time, and that's where economic growth as an ideology came from. And yeah, it's funny because now you've begun to see all these other indicators come out, you know, of like the growth happiness index and all these different ways to come up with other ways of understanding what a good society or effective society might be. And yet none of them have had the same impacts of creating this, you know, understanding of growth. Yeah, totally. Like um, there's different countries that once in a while will say, you know, we're not gearing our economy towards growth, uh, towards economic growth anymore. Um, but that is the exception to the rule. Um, you know, New Zealand has recently stated that they switch away from GDP. Bhutan um, uses uh, the happiness index instead. Um, but essentially, economic growth is so powerful as a measurement precisely because it 
um, it measures it measures how much is being made, how much profit there is, um, which doesn't at all translate to well-being um, in any yeah. way. Yeah, and there have been. I think it's interesting how much how effectively I think people have picked away at GDP. You know, I think generally speaking, a society would understand and accept some of the limits of GDP, whereas way fewer people, I think, would understand the the pitch to stop growth. And mm-hmm. yet there, you know, yet that that growth mindset was caused by GDP. It's mm-hmm. interesting that we've successfully got the tool has got picked away at and proven how it's not so great. And I think a lot of people have begun to get more on board, but the impact of the tool remains as strong as ever. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And so I I presume that the answer to this question is yes, but you can tell me if I'm wrong. Is that what is meant by the hegemony of growth? You sort of have that term in the book. Is that what you mean by it? Sort of the way that growth has become all-encompassing. Yeah, so that's the small part of it. So I mentioned that there's an ideological aspect of growth. There's also a social and material aspect. And, and I mentioned that they're self, they're, they reinforce each other. So social, you could think of as like, the kind of society that really um, makes this ideology um, function that that greases the wheels of that of that ideology. Um, so it's a society based on competition, where where we're all um, kind of alienated, and we're all kind of on a treadmill, constantly trying to just survive, working. Um, and um, there's also roots to that society where you know you can go back to um, colonialism and the kind of uh, domination over uh, most of the world and um, thinking of them as lesser people, domination over nature. Um, those are that's kind of the basis of, of what allows growth to be such a dominant ideology. And then another um, aspect of the hegemony of growth that really uh, that really cements it is the material side where, you know, where there are benefits that we get from economic growth. When economic growth happens, we just see this abundance of, of um, material goods that's created for a specific class, for the class of people that, that benefit from that. Um, and at the same time, you have uh, it, what, what's kind of insidious about that and is, is that you can really track as economic growth increases, you can track the amount of stuff, of material and energy use um, that the economy produces. And you know, if growth is increasing at two to 3%, at the same time, the material and energetic throughput, as we call it, of the economy in- accelerates exponentially at this, um, on this roughly the same rate. So they're really strongly coupled together, the material side, and the the metric the GDP metric, right? That makes sense. And so, I switched a couple of questions around. So, Paul, I hope that doesn't uh, cause any problems because I think to me the next question I would I, I feel like I need to ask is, what are the critiques? You know, what do you think are the strongest critiques that can be made against thinking like this, or with this growth hegemony? Yeah. So in our book, we talk about. Uh, seven critiques um and you know i I could list them here but uh, a couple of them are are critique from a feminist perspective from a 
global south, like international perspective, an economic, ecological, um, social, just kind of the whole gamut of different kinds of critiques. Um, and um, I, I think a one, one critique that I think is a useful one, um, well, I'll start with the one that's maybe the most obvious and that the one that often brings people to degrowth is the ecological critique. And that's the one that we begin with. Um, it's, the, it's the idea that, you know, these, um, because economic growth is so strongly coupled to um, what we call the metabolism of, of the economy, um, which is like how much goes in and then how much goes out of the economy, the same way that you might have your own metabolism. Um, that they are so coupled together that it's kind of um, a, a bit of a pipe dream that you can decouple them fast enough to stop climate change. Um, so that's kind of where the ecological critique comes in, where um, it is very obvious that a system which depends on having to grow two to three percent every year, as econ economists says, say, say that we should, which also at the same time grows materially at a similar rate, within 20 years, you're going to have to have an economy that is 20 percent the size of the one you had um, to start with. So it's just this, like, and there's only one earth that we live on. So it's, it's kind of like a kind of a grounding critique where, well, in an, in any ecological system, there are limits. Um, and that's kind of the critique that a lot of people come from. Now we can talk also about, um, I, I think one critique that's very present for a lot of people is, is the kind of social, the cultural critique actually is where, you know, it's, it's just so tiring <laughs> to live in this economy you know like we we're constantly just feel like we're having to accelerate our lives like you can't just you can't just like do the thing that you do you always have to kind of increase your personal um activity and 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 just keep going and keep going and and that's from like you know it's almost impossible to be a small farmer for example because you always have to take on more debt so that you can put more, invest more in your farm, then you have to grow, you have to buy more land and it just keeps going and you're just working on, on debt. And it's just, it's the same at like kind of every, every level. Um, so I think for me, that's, that's kind of the critique of, of the alienation of this, of the society, of a society based on, on endless competition. And, and on um, always increasing the self, um, which is really exhausting. Um, you know, now, like, um, I was really, I don't know if you've heard this term goblin mode, um, where like, people are like, I'm in goblin mode right now, which is just like, I'm shutting down, like, I'm on the bed, scrolling, looking at TikTok, like eating chips, and I just can't anymore. And I feel like that's something that we're all feeling just because we're so overextended, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, man, it's exhausting. We've yeah. a few different times on the show, especially the last couple of years, we've had episodes entirely devoted really to us being like, it just sucks out there, guys. I don't know what else to say. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And there are different ways to live and other, and other ways to live. Um, so before we go to our first week's break, I'm curious if there's, if there's a third critique, is there any third one that you sort of would throw out there as, as one last reason why, you know, growth is not something that we should be all striving for? Yeah, I think um, for me, I think the feminist critique is, is one that is ex exceedingly important, um, but not one that often gets mentioned when people think of degrowth. Um, so one example is if we go back to GDP, um, if, if we use the standard GDP metrics, um, and let's say a, 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 a man, like a businessman, marries his own housewife, um, all of a sudden, that housewife starts doing the domestic labor for free, um, though he is paying for the housing and the food bills and everything. But that's not counted in GDP um, anymore. So all of a sudden, that's free. That's not part of progress. That's not part of well-being. So th that's called the housewife paradox, um, where you just have all this labor that is done in society that is not accounted for, not valued, and it's mostly done by women. And, and so the eco-feminist critique of growth is that there's this whole part of the economy that is incredibly valuable, and it's, it's about care, it's about um, supporting each other, and it's about um, finding ways that the necessity of, of relationships and building relationships for individual, for everyone to be autonomous beings, um, for everyone to be able to determine their own lives. But there's this necessity of, of caring for each other that depends, that that depends on. And that's not at, at all included when we think of economic growth. You know, when we think of growth, we don't think of all the teachers, the nurses, um, the, the, the childcare givers um, that make that possible. Yeah, for sure. I, my favorite example, one of my favorite examples of that is Adam Smith, who, when writing Wealth of Nations, the book that made him famous, basically had uh, his mom take care of him the whole time. Like, she, like he, he moved home and she just like made him all of his meals. And so like he gets remembered as this guy who did all those things. And yet like straight up, he himself did not take care of himself. He had a ton of free labor from his his mom to kept him alive. It's like great wealth of nations, everybody. <laughs> That's very funny. I did not know that. It also reminds me of my darkest moments during my PhD myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as you weren't writing an argument about how the market will solve all uh, <laughs> while ignoring that, I think you're probably, you know, at least, uh, at least a little better off than Adam Smith in this case. first third of the show was about growth and its problems, but now let's switch this, flip the switch and talk about degrowth. Um, let's start with what is degrowth and where did it come from? So very simply said, um, degrowth is the idea that we can have a society, an economy that um, achieves well-being for everybody without depending exclusively on economic growth. 
uh, to achieve well-being while at the same time, which scales down the amount of stuff that it uses, the amount of material and energy that it uses. Um, so where deep growth came from, um, it's a bit of a, a checkered history. You know, you could say that ideas like degrowth have kind of existed for as long as, as capitalism has resisted from the Luddites breaking the machines in, in Northern England um, to, to slaves, you know, revolting. Um, but the, the kind of ideas, specific ideas um, around degrowth have um, kind of emerged starting in the 1970s, you had, uh, you know, there's the famous um, limits to growth report um, in 1972, which by the way, is now its 50th anniversary. Um, and uh, then in the 1990s, only then was really the term degrowth um, started to be coined. Um, and that began in France. So you had this kind of, um, at the time we had all this uh, talk about sustainable development, international development, um, and uh, kind of the French version of, of, of the Adbuster magazine, they um, put out a whole issue called um, sustainable degrowth, which was kind of like a, a bit of a troll phrase at the start. You know, they, they kind of used it as like a, uh, just kind of to like rub, rub all these sustainable development types the wrong way to say no like we can we can um, shift away from depending on economic growth um, and uh, we can do that in a way that achieves uh, well-being for everybody so then the word degrowth started gaining a kind of a life of its own and became a movement um, in the in the late 2000s um, you've had the first uh, international degrowth conference. And I think since then we've had seven of those. Um, and increasingly it's, it's became, uh, become kind of a, a full-fledged, uh, I would say like field of thought and action. Let, let's look at two theoretical uh, versions of a green utopia. You, you've written about this uh, in the Briar Patch uh, and you, I think it's also mentioned in the book sort of comparing a Green New Deal, which is the thing that a lot of people are sort of pushing for. It's a big progressive vision in, you know, in, in movements with sort of what a version of the changes would be in degrowth. And what are the similarities there and what are the differences? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, so in the book, we position ourselves, um, we, we describe the Green New Deal as a positive development. And it, it's an interesting development because it brings together a lot of different people from different backgrounds around this um, kind of very transformative idea that we can both transform the economy to, to fully decarbonize while what's called doing a just transition while making sure that everyone has employment, that everyone has their needs met. Um, so degrowth, I would say, is completely in line with that, with that vision, um, it, if described in that way. Um, but then once you get into the details, there's a lot of people who are for the Green New Deal 
who describes the Green New Deal as a, uh, a vehicle for economic growth, but specifically for green growth. Um, and the, the degrowth perspective would be, well, actually, we, the problem is that we have this economy that's geared towards growth, towards economic growth, and we need to not depend on that anymore. We, we don't have to... Um, we don't have to have the Green New Deal satisfy economic growth. Actually, it would be much better if our economy was no longer uh, relying on that because that's the thing that when a crisis happens means that everyone loses their jobs, um, everyone, uh, you know, all austerity happens, cutbacks happen. So what we need to do is basically like shockproof the economy. And to do that, it we can't, link our public services, link uh, well-being to basically the whims of, of a private market. Um, so that, that's kind of, I think, you know, you could say that um, degrowth fits really well into the Green New Deal, but provides kind of a, an analysis and, and some basic recommendations that would make it even better. Um, cool. And so... Let's dive into this a little bit because I'm. I feel like it'd be helpful to clarify. So, in a world of degrowth, you're not saying that everything is stagnant, but that some that but but mostly just that. Or correct me if I'm wrong. That there are areas of growth, but also areas of shrinking, and that ultimately the overall goal of the economy is not necessarily growth, or is the overall goal actually to ensure a degrowth? Like, is, is degrowth the movement about actually trying to shrink the economy, which I can see many arguments for, or is it more so about how maybe you do, sometimes maybe you don't sometimes, but really the problem is actually the exclusive goal of the economy being growth? That's a really good question. And now we're like really going into the weeds. Um, I would say that there are different positions on this. Um, it's, you know, it's a kind of movement of thousands of people, so I can't claim to say. Um, but what we argue in our book is that degrowth um, is about, it will involve kind of the shrinking of the material side of the economy, necessarily, because that's kind of the, the basic ecological limits that we're up against right now. Um, and it would also involve very likely in the near term, that would necessitate in the near term, no longer relying on economic growth to achieve well-being. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's quite growth agnostic, but it's like, because we know for a fact that probably we can't decouple growth from material, um, from the material side, probably it's going to shrink. But it, it's not like we want we want recessions to happen. It's that we we want them no longer to happen ever again, you know. Right, right. Okay. So that the key is not economic growth or growth. It's material that the material throughput of our economies needs to shrink, which I think is honestly just a environmental reality. Yes. Like, yes. You look at any Earth Overshoot Day, I think, was like yes. two weeks ago, which for those who don't know, is about how you, when the Earth 
officially has used up the resources it could in a year. And I, it happens every year, roughly sometime in the midsummer. So we're about halfway through, we, which means, you know, we're using arguably twice as much. Okay. So that's helpful. So it's, it's about material first and foremost, and then that has an obvious impact on other things, but that's your sort of first focus. Because, because we can't, Right now, there is no evidence that we can decouple economic growth from that material side fast enough. There's some kind of indication that, you know, it's kind of we're not as for every percent GDP, it's a bit less materially intensive, but it's like it's like when you're going up a steep hill, but the incline is just slightly nicer, but we're still going up a steep hill, you know? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Last week we interviewed uh, a, a woman from uh, the Canadian uh, Climate Action Network. And one of the conversations we were having there was about the the obsession with what sort of efficiency. This the obsession with efficiency in terms yes. of uh, you know, carbon and things like that, which like, yeah, it's a less steep hill, which is the a good way of describing it. But you're still going up. You are still going up and up is bad. Yeah. Or, or uh, to put it another way, we're just on a train, we're barreling at 200 kilometers an hour, there's a cliff ahead. And efficiency has made sure that like, our engine now runs on biofuel instead, you know? Yeah, cool. So I think I now have a pretty good sense of what y'all mean by degrowth and sort of the, the arguments uh, for it and against it in terms of, of growth. So let's move this sort of theoretical conversation into, into reality. Because I think one of the things that makes degrowth maybe harder to argue for is semantics. You know, degrowth sounds like losing stuff or decreasing things. And so I'm curious if you can give us a you know, more visionary or inspirational uh, vision of the world that embraces you know, this new economic paradigm. Yeah, so... I think you're absolutely correct. And, you know, in some ways, lots of the discussion around degrowth becomes a bit muddled because immediately people hear that and you're like, you want us, you want to drag us back to the stone ages. Um, you want to live in caves, um, uh, which is obviously not at all what we mean. At the same time, I do think it's, it's, it's had its use to be such a kind of provocative word because it forces some conversations to be had that we honestly haven't been having as a society enough. Um, you know, this provo provocation, degrowth, forces people to say, hey, hey, hold on there. What do you mean by that? And then we can start talking about it. Um, however, that said, um, you know, people often accuse degrowth of being basically a regressive kind of um, just a negative thing. But Everyone that talks about degrowth um, actually has a very utopian idea of what that could look like. And in our book, we talk about um, public abundance. So we, that plays a really central um, role in, in the degrowth proposal. Um, and so public abundance is kind of the idea that you could easily transform society where everyone's needs are met. Um, in a way that uh, doesn't actually take a lot of material resources, doesn't actually um, cost society all that much, but it, it just 
you start having this world that is just like so pleasant to live in. And there's already a lot of examples of that. So I, you know, I, I live here in Montreal uh, during a heat wave um, in the summer, every single neighborhood has a public swimming pool that's open and free. And it's just like something that is exists because it's, it's a public health matter, but then you just have everyone's just like at the pool in the summer and it's great. And then, you know, you have in lots of cities, you have uh, car sharing um, cooperatives, you have uh, bike city bike systems, um, public transit that's affordable. In Quebec as well, we have a childcare system that so everyone can afford childcare and it's, it's basically run through uh, state support. But you can start kind of imagining that on, on many aspects of, of, of the economy. For example, one that a lot of people, when I say it, a lot of people are like, whoa, that's cool. Um, it's like, you know, we all have to do stuff at home where we're like fixing up our house where, or we like trying to help our friends build a shed or something. And then we all go to Home Depot to buy the exact same tools. Um, and then we all have these tools that are like in our tool shed, which we also have to build. And then it's just this like kind of absurd thing. You, you go to a street and on any given street, there's probably a hundred of the same tools, but like we're not using them. We only use each of them like once a year. It's, so, um, you know, you can imagine two libraries in, in, in any neighborhood where you can just go, you take the tool at very little cost, um, bring it back. So it's like libraries of everything almost like, so that's kind of what public abundance could look like. Super cool. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that I, we've had on the show a couple of times in, in, in here in Toronto, we have the Toronto tool library. And one of their big phrases is that if you buy a hammer, you on average will use that hammer for 12 minutes in its entire lifetime. Like you, what you actually need is 12 minutes of hammering mm -hmm. and not a hammer. And it will sit in your space for the entirety of the time for those 12 minutes where it comes through. It's just like, why? Yeah. 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 And here we, we briefly had a kitchen library, which did a similar thing for some of the more, because it, it really works for the bigger stuff, you know, the yes. things like the kitchen aids, the stuff like that, that are hard for people to keep in their house, especially when, as we live in, you know, the housing crisis, which is also could be pretty much directly tied to our obsession with growth, uh, can be, is causing us to live in smaller spaces. And so you don't have the ability to have these bigger utensils that when you need them for the times you need them, very helpful. Mm -hmm. But again, you don't have storage space or you don't have the money to afford them because they're $700. Yeah. And, and the one question, the thing that for me that I think that gets it, that, that, that this part really ties in for ways, that, the way that it really ties back for me is the consideration and the thought about how, what, how you build these tools changes if you imagine them being built for this purpose. Mm. Like if you imagine tools being built for the collective, suddenly they need to be dramatically better built. Like mm -hmm. you can invest in them being high quality and great because the goal isn't that everyone can afford them. The goal is that everyone can use them through this collective process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've become a society where new equals better at all times, which was not the case even a hundred years ago. You know, a hundred years ago, if you'd had a hammer or a tool for three generations, that was indicative of a very good tool because it lasted. Whereas mm -hmm. now, you know, if you don't have the new thing, 
that's the, it must not be good, you know? Yeah. And it, yeah. it's a complete switch that if you can just imagine us building for the collective in, in repeated use, mm-hmm. you don't have all the junk. Like it feels like half the things we own don't work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's just a way to try to create more stuff. Yeah. Um, how can we build towards these worlds? Yeah. So in our book, we kind of divide the book between like, is degrowth necessary? We argue, yes. Um, is it is it uh, something that's desirable? Uh, we also say, yes, absolutely. Um, and then is it achievable? Is it something that like um, we can actually make happen? And then we describe what, how could we make this happen? So we could start, um, we give an argument for three kind of different ways to conceive of how um, degrowth could become a reality. Um, and it's you can kind of think of it as like things that happen, uh, you know, in society that kind of um, organically happen that people do where they live, um, things that people do through the government, and then things that people do like as social movements to force kind of action to happen. Um, so just to divide those up, to, to name them, um, we have, um, we, we say, um, there are nowtopias, non-reformist reforms, and then uh, ruptural strategies. So, so what we call counter hegemony. Um, so I, I can deal with them one by one. Um, so to start with nowtopias, uh, it's kind of like the tool libraries we talked about um, just now. It's these things that exist in the present already that might be utopian, but they they're now. <laughs> um, and and um, there are often things that like they they just once people start getting involved with them, they're like, what? Like we could do things totally different. Like this exists. Like why don't we just do everything like this? Um, and you can see that when like someone just stumbles into a tool library for the first time, or or um, you know, like I remember walking into a bike rep- uh, like community bike repair shop, and I was like, what? Why, why not everything like this? Um, and so, but it, it could extend to like, um, to, you know, community gardens, cooperative housing, um, things like that. And what's important here is not this kind of idea that, um, that somehow you like add each one of these up and you have this like new society that just gets formed because that's not what happens usually is they don't, they, they tend to die out. Um, it's more that these are really important in kind of encouraging desire for change. Once people see that there's a different way, a more democratic way of doing things, you start kind of being able to visualize what a different society could look like. Um, now, the other one is kind of the ways to like make those sustain themselves. Um, so we call them non-reformist reforms. So it's like things that are reforms, but because they're so kind of like fundamentally challenging to the system, they just open up a whole new way of doing things. So um, one of them we talk about is universal basic services, which is kind of like the public abundance idea. It's services that just exist that anyone can access. Um, So it's kind of like universal basic income, which we also talk about, but it, you know, even if you were to get 
let's say a thousand dollars a month, but rent is just too damn high. Um, you would still be able to live a, 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 a very respectful life, a life that's like, okay. Um, so that's, that's one idea. Uh, another idea is, is like when we're talking about uh, that we talk about is, is um, canceling climate debt and, and, and climate reparations. So there's rich countries that are far more responsible for climate change than poor countries. While poor countries have all this debt that still exists from basically colonial eras that they're still trying to pay off. So they don't have the money to make the changes that they need to make. So there needs to be some kind of reparations happening. Um, so that's another um, non-reformist reform. Now, the last one, ruptural strategies or counter hegemony. So if, if you remember, we talk about the growth hegemony. A counter hegemony is kind of like a new common sense that is brought into being through social movements that work together that actually block the power of, of corporations and often of the state and, and create kind of a new power where people can decide things together. Um, so th we, we, argue, like, we argue that those three really are um, complementary strategies that reinforce each other. So like, let's say we elect like our favorite politician ever that we think is gonna change everything. Ultimately, there's still just a politician. We still need one um, to hold them accountable and to force other, to, to support them when they do the right things and to force other politicians um, to, to, um, to not block them. So, and we'd also still need some kind of uh, examples so that people know what they're voting for um, and so that people know what this kind of uh, degrowth system could look like. And so, I mean, I this question I, a little bit feels like it's a, it's a leading question for sure. So I, I'm going to open that uh, and admit to it off the bat. But I do think that when we hear about these sort of different options and different ways that we could imagine the future and, you know, nowtopias that exist right now, and there's other ways that we could sort of get at this. When you're tackling or taking on something as hegemonic as growth, you know, and for those who don't know, for those just to clarify my terms, what we mean here is like that growth is presumed as necessary by such a large percentage of society that it's very actually hard to even yourself break out of the thinking, you know, like you have mm -hmm. to very intentionally break out, which I will say to almost counter my previous point about the term degrowth, that's the one thing that the term does well is it directly names the thing and says no, which mm -hmm. is a first step towards being able to sort of, you know, pull the curtain uh, out from and sort of show the Wizard of Oz or the Invisible Hand as, as not perhaps so true. Um, but it is to take on something that big and that overwhelming is daunting. And I think a lot of people, I'm sure, would look at it and be like, I don't know if we, in the same way that the question of whether or not we can decouple fast enough is an interesting one. There's a second question of whether or not we can change the system fast enough to get, you know, get to where we need climate change. You know, like I, I'm sure there are people out there who hear this and are like, man, that does sound great. That it, that would be amazing. But we have 20 years on climate change right now. 
we don't have time to rethink our entire economic system. We have to take it on to the way. And so what would you say to those people? And, you know, do you see degrowth movement as one that the world can achieve? Absolutely. I think what we try to encourage in the book is, is a sense of hope that, that this is possible. And I would just say that it's, it's really interesting that we've gotten into a situation where we think that these made up things like, like national debt are more real than this material thing, which is like the earth, you know? Um, and that's what we're right now up against is like somehow we, the, the people who are arguing for green growth are saying, no, keep these made up things in place. And what we're gonna do is we're kinda gonna install carbon removal machines everywhere. We're gonna build nuclear power. We're gonna transform the earth so that this made up thing can, be, can just be as it is. Um, and that's, that's really weird <laughs> um, because we can honestly, you know, just that's a thing that can happen really fast. We could just say, oh, uh, we no longer need to have housing depend on private enterprise. We can just do that ourselves. Um, and it's, it's strange that we've kind of gotten into this thing. So I think, you know, also things tend to happen really fast all of a sudden. So suddenly uh, kind of a spark can happen where suddenly people realize that the impossible has become possible. Um, but I think that really depends on, on some small things that are in place before, some ideas that were already nascent. And I think a really important thing is to encourage those ideas um, of like how a different society could be. Um, and yeah, I think for me, it's, it's, it's like often a question of being in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, you, it can feel like, like someone was like degrowth. I can't even, I can't even get my neighbors to hold a, a street party. Um, you know, like how, how are we going to do this massive thing? Um, but I, I, but you know, sometimes it actually does begin with a, a street party. Um, and it, it does begin with, let's say, uh, going on strike in, in your local Starbucks. Um, and it's these small things that matter. And like a way that we finish off the book um, is by saying, you know, um, there's all these different ways to be involved um, in society. Um, and we've mapped out, you know, three different strategies towards degrowth. And um, you, you we're part of the same struggle, even if it might seem like what you're doing is, is small and insignificant, um, because other people are working on that other part. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, this, the struggle is so huge that everyone, it's going to take everyone doing every little piece of it and the things and then things do, you know, piece by piece of piece, you got to find something there. So I think that uh, gives people a nice sort of way to to imagine themselves sort of taking their first steps. But I wonder if you can give us as beginning, a couple more questions left, but as a way, beginning to close this conversation, um, what do you sort of see as the future of the degrowth movement? Mm. Yeah, so I think um, our the last concluding chapter, which is quite short, is called not the future is degrowth, but the future 
of degrowth. Um, and, and there we kind of outline a few different things, which are like, these are some things that the degrowth movement and that we all kind of have to deal with. Um, so one of them is, you know, I can, I'm not going to list all of them, but one of them is geopolitics. Like all of a sudden something world changing happens, like Russia invades Ukraine. A lot of uh, progress is out the window. Fossil fuel companies are making more money than ever. Um, so these are very real things that, that we have to contend with. Um, and, and we don't really have the answers there, but it, it is really important. Um, another one that we, we point to is, is the problem of, of racial um, uh, racism, uh, racial capitalism and, and class structure. So something that, we, we, that the degrowth movement still needs to talk more about is how capitalism, how growth depends on making some humans less important than others. Um, and racism, colonialism is a really big part of that. Also the class structure of society. So when a lot of people hear degrowth, they say, hey, like I, I've been struggling all my life and you're telling me like I should have less. And that's a real, a real concern. And I think uh, we need to be able to move beyond that as an environmental movement. We need to be able to... Um, develop a movement that is class and race inclusive. Yeah, that yeah, makes a lot of sense. That sort of feels very aligned with the sort of shift with the environmental movement you've seen maybe over the last 20 years as well is sort of really coming to a reckoning that green colonialism is not going to a, build the, the structures. Uh, green colonialism is not going to build the structures and connections and neither will green capitalism, you know, and the ways in which you have to embrace and understand the histories of, you know, different marginalized people, especially indigenous people who are on the front lines of these fights. And then also the labor movement in the way the labor movement has sort of been in the front lines of fighting capitalism. You have to include and lift up those two voices and ultimately almost sort of, I feel like the winning solution is probably to step back and mm -hmm. be the bridge and support those two movements to sort of fight back against this mm -hmm. all consuming machine. And that is, you know, growth. Yeah, and I would just say there that, um, you know, since we wrote the book, obviously Ukraine happened, but also we've had incredible, incredible things happening in Latin America. Um, you know, with Chile, we had the election of basically a, a socialist feminist government that puts indigenous issues at the center. And now in Colombia, we have the first ever leftist um, in, in, as president, but it's not just any leftist, it's like literally a leftist that who has studied ecological economics. And then his vice president is, is a black woman, an Afro um, Latina woman who has worked her whole life to support indigenous movements. So it, it, we could start seeing a kind of leftism which unites environmental movements and labor struggles and brings them on the same page. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, for sure. And so if there was one thing you wanted people to leave with from this conversation, you know, we've, we've now been talking for almost an hour. And so they've heard a lot, but if there's one thing you wanted them to leave and take with them, what would it be? Maybe, you know, um, the world is a very depressing place and it can all feel pretty overwhelming. Um, but, um, you know, 
there are all ways that we can all work towards something um, and we can um, work towards it together. Um, and I think degrowth is a key part of that conversation. It's not the um, be all end all of what needs to happen, um, but I think it's something that we can no longer ignore. Awesome. And so if folks have now listened to this and want to learn more about your work or get your book uh, and keep up with the degrowth movement more generally, how can they do that? Yeah. Um, so the future is degrowth is available from Verso Books. It should be available in your local independent bookshop. Um, if not, just call them and ask. Um, should be. You can also make it available in your local library. And um, you can follow um, Andrea. She's one of the co-authors. She's not on Twitter, but Matthias and myself are. Um, just I'm at a underscore V-A-N-S-I and Matthias is at M-G Schmelzer. So that's M-G-S-C-H-M-E-L-Z-E-R. Um, yeah, and um, Matthias especially is extremely educational in his online um, communication. So he's a really great person to follow on this subject. Amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I certainly learned a lot. I, I'm sure our listeners did too. Uh, this has been a conversation with Aaron Vansengen, uh, the co-author of The Future is Degrowth. Thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Stefan.